0: Welcome to the Todd DeVoe Show, exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Good morning, good morning, or good afternoon, depending on where you are in this fine world. Uh, In the news, you know, the war in uh, the Ukraine still rages on, and uh, our our thoughts and prayers are definitely with the people that are impacted by that. Uh, To my friends that are over there that are uh, doing great work, uh, keep it up and keep your head down, and we do appreciate everything that you're doing. But today we're talking about well, maybe it kind of ties in, but we're, we're talking about climate refugees and migration due to climate, and we have one of the world's greatest experts in that, Patrick Marchman. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you for your kind words. Oh. Climate refugees, I, I think that's a, a, a something that we have to really start thinking about. I don't well, are, are they really refugees or are they just climate migrators? Well,
1: well I think. That, that's that's actually an interesting place to start so i know that the refugee is sort of a term of a legal term of art and there's a lot of resistance to you know, kind of using that in a more formal way um so that's one thing another thing is people leave for lots of reasons sometimes climate is only second or third order maybe just to find a better job or instance so there's a there's a whole range so i kind of prefer this the term migrants
0: migrants okay We'll, we'll go with that. I, and I, I kind of agree with you on, on that aspect of it. But I think it's interesting, like, you know, when we think of this, this is the, the myopic view of America, I think, that we put a, we always think of people coming from different countries uh, when we're looking at, at those issues. And realistically, we're seeing it happen here from issues in the United States, right? I mean, there's a city or the town, I guess, or county um, in central California, which is without water. Right, zero waters in there and so they have to make a decision at this point do they stay there and truck in water so they can live in their home or do they do they move and go someplace where there's actually water that they can can utilize is is, would that fall into that
1: same idea of what you're thinking about i i think it would um honestly i mean you know you know yeah i mean that that's definitely going to be something that you know affects the general question of where are people going to go and you know if you can't if, if you're literally not going to have the water to be able to live in your house you know even if you have a million dollar house that has the best view in the world you know it's not going to really do you much good so yeah even that kind of person can be a can be a migrant it's uh yeah it's um it is really interesting And you're right in that you know it's um it, it definitely is not just overseas it is from right here in the u.s so
0: we're seeing this due to the impacts due to, well, climate change due to, I mean, wars and everything else like that. That's a different type of refugee. But, I mean, realistically, there's environmental impacts that are occurred uh, due to due to that, right? I mean, like, if you take a look at what's happening over in, in Ukraine right now, um, I mean, they're using some interesting explosives, if you will, uh, that could have some uh, residual effect for many years to come. Is that Would that fall into the same category or would that still be more of a war refugee
1: well i i mean i i would have i would hesitate to call any of the the people who are fleeing in the past week from ukraine and i heard last night the estimate was like over a million people in the past six days yeah. um and so i hesitate to call them environmental right now um but I, I, again i, I want to kind of go back on just a bit to that because you know i i think you know sometimes we think of client you know very few people at this stage are going to say you know, they're going to leave because of climate change. It's a second or third order thing. And so if you're looking at sort of the environmental slash climate drivers of things, you know, um, you definitely have to look at, um, you know, w- one of the projected impacts of this is going to be more conflict worldwide. Mm. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about recently, we're about at the 50th anniversary of the limits to growth report from MIT. And um, there's been every every 10 years, somebody goes back to it and they go, yep we're on track and um so one of the things that you kind of see frequently is the the idea that you know as sort of the global poly crisis of all these different things you know kind of starts biting a little bit there's a more greater likelihood of conflict so i'm not going to say that's the direct cause of what's happening in ukraine right now but i i will say that um you know these increasingly kind of conflicts that almost almost seem to disregard the, the systems that we've kind of put together and sort of our political and economic global systems. Um, This is kind of not unexpected.
0: Let's, let's talk about that for a second because I had some interesting questions that came in, in my head, at least they're interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So we think about global conflict and based upon land grabbing, right. Kind of like what we feel or what the, what the pundits are saying saying Russia is doing today. today. Um, but we do have um, issues where people need, like countries need, or, or individuals or whatever, need water. Um, you mm-hmm. can see some of those issues that are happening. Some of the conflict that we have um, in, the, in the African continent is where nations are coming to grab water or, or, or other goods, other things like that. Um, and then here specifically in, the, in Ukraine is the breadbasket, right? I mean, they, they have a lot of areas where they're growing corn. Um, and and wheat uh, are two of the, of the biggest exports from there. And China uh, actually gets a lot of their corn and wheat uh, from from Ukraine. So I, I find that kind of interesting. in the aspect of are are some of these conflicts going for resources? Um, is that what you're seeing as
1: well in your research? Um. Well, you know, this gets this gets geopolitical in a sense that uh, you know, I'm definitely not the. Um, I'm definitely not the the complete expert in some of this, so um, right. But I will say that uh, that is a really important thing that we're looking forward. To. I mean, I would say there was a report last year. ProPublica and the New York Times did a report looking at this sort of thing on a global, including a global level, and they actually did you know look at sort of the Asian landmass. And you're right; it's not only Ukraine but Russia itself. You know, are huge exporters of you know grain and and everything else, and so. Right now, you're saying with all this disruption, the prices are you know, going up everywhere and, you know, North America right now, we can handle this sort of thing, but places in Africa, they, they really can't. And so, um, and, and I, and one thing I would say, you know, although recent decisions may call this into question, leaders of like Russia and these countries are not dumb and, you know, they tend to look forward right. um, in, in time and so um they they see some of the same data we have and i would definitely say the chinese are not dumb and so um i think these uh sort of things are, ca- are ca- maybe not first sort of calculations but definitely in the back of people's minds
0: yeah i always like to look at the what it's in the back of people's minds because i think sometimes when we see what looks like the reason um for one it is it may not be what the what the true underlying causes are right because like to me and, and i know we're not right here really necessarily talk about Mm -hmm. the the conflict right now, but just it's in my head is that it doesn't make sense geopolitically speaking, uh, for now, for why, why is Putin deciding to do this? And there's, I, I'm just really struggling to find answers. So maybe that's why I'm kind of pulling at straws Mm -hmm. with, with, with other things, you know, but, um, I mean, but the reason why I kind of bring that up is these conflicts do create environmental issues, right? I mean, Mm I mean, they're dropping some serious—I mean, you know—munitions down at um, certain areas. I mean, you could. There's a bomb that they have uh, that they said they use. I haven't. They're still not sure if they used it or not. They're going back and forth. But the, the the design of the bomb is to be dropped into a wooded area, blow the trees out, so you can create a helicopter landing area. You know and it just just think about what that could do what, what does that do to the environment there and and what are the impacts that are, are around on, on that you know so that's kind of why i was kind of parlaying this question based upon munitions
1: yeah i've never i've never heard of that specific kind of bomb but you know again uh war has always had a negative impact on environment and uh you know where whether depleted uranium you know casings on shells whatever what, whatever you might have and today is probably you know again with the technologies that are available to you know different participants you know it's um yeah it's uh, it's 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 a definite thing to consider so
0: I mean, we're, we're we're America. We are not uh, not guilty of of doing stuff like this. I mean, we use napalm in Vietnam and also Asian Orange, you know, to to deforest places and and so I mean, it, it, we do it. It's just an environmental uh, wreaking environmental havoc on on places that we go into. So uh, that's kind of why I was bringing that up. Mm-hmm. So, what should we expect as emergency managers? You know, how do we plan for? or I should say, how do we plan for? What should we be planning for when it comes to um uh migration to to climate issues or environmental issues
1: well that that's a that's a that's a really good question i think the and, and i'll just preface this by saying things are really really early as in it, it's still i mean we're in a very early stage here uh and that means you're going to see a lot more for coming um so i would say the first thing to realize is to realize that it is coming um, to realize that you're going to see it from different, you know, several different angles, you know, um, be it, you know, to a classic idea of refugees to being sort of to the um, the kind of more subtle real estate-based thing, which, you know, uh, the Urban Land Institute recently put a really comprehensive report out about that to the classic, you know, idea of, okay, well, you have sea level rise or intensified flooding, you're going to get a buyouts. So I think it's the number one thing is to know it's going to happen. Number two is, and this is something that, you know i i feel like i i bang i bang the drum on a lot and i'm probably not very successful sometimes um but i'll keep doing it uh this time uh is that we have to get over the idea that past conditions are going to be predictive of future conditions right. especially now we absolutely have to um, I, I would say a, some some story I saw last week, and this is before the IPCC report on climate adaptation that dropped on Monday, um, but I will say last week I saw a story that said somewhere like the global water cycle is visibly, you know, impacted to like, you know, we're seeing this again far in advance of projections even 10 years ago. So if you're looking at the global water cycle, you're getting, you know, we're getting more intense rains, you're seeing this another kind of brick in the wall of the proof of that, then you've got to be thinking in terms of hazard mitigation, for example. um, You've got to be thinking, you know, okay, well, we got a plan for that. You can't just look back and say, well, here was a flood in 1800 and here's what happened. I mean, you, you can't really do that. And I think, I think at times that's a difficult message to get through for a lot of through people for a lot of reasons, but I think that's going to be the number that you you got to you got to recognize the future is not going to look like today.
0: Absolutely, it, it is not, and I think that's one of the problems that we do uh, we plan for yesterday's battles, if you will, with mm-hmm. that and not in today's uh, climate. We have to be leading forward. And I think that's one of the things I really really stress to people, specifically in leadership, is that we need to be leading forward, but we need to be also doing the research. Right. right. We can't just, you know, look at a book that was written about the Jamestown flood or whatever and, and go, OK, that's where it was. And we need to be looking forward to what's going on right now and really having um, that the information coming in, intelligence coming in. You know, um, <clears throat> I'm I'm looking at some of the comments right now. And, and I just really uh, Charlotte says Agent Orange as well. And then um, it also uh, uh, Charles says it makes me think of all the co- livestock that are killed um, in conflict. Uh, that's, that's a really good point as well. And then, oh, how about DDT um, and affected everything and everyone? Are are, are the farming, the, the big farms, um, are they making environmental impacts that we can't um, recover from? Specifically, say like the DDT type stuff, or or uh, uh, all the methane that's being poured out by the
1: uh, large farms and and the, and the sludge that's coming from them. That's, that's a great question. Again, I'm not a really expert in sort of the agricultural area. I know it's right. hard enough to be dangerous. But um, I will <laughs> say that, uh, yeah, I, I mean, you can look at, say, farming, uh, conventional agriculture worldwide, and you can look at it, I mean, not only historically through the historical record from, like, Sumeria, the, the, um, the Sumerians, I think that's, what do you say, Sumeria, um, to, like, the salting of, like, right lower tigris and euphrates to today where you can see in the like the midwest and iowa like however many inches of topsoil sort of loss and you'll at things like ddt you know i think there's a cumulative impact there that you know really kind of i mean again we struggle to understand these things i don't think human beings are very good at it um but it does definitely have some an impact and, I, and i'm not even touching on things like hormone endocrine disruptors or whatever what's happening out there but um yeah there's a lot <laughs> You know, let's you know. I mean, let's hear why that for a second, because he just kind of made me think about this. So
0: you're right. I mean, the the ancient farmers, if you will, actually really pushed desertification of the area, right? I mean, we we you know the the salting of the sea and then the fact that the topsoil goes. So you know, some of the the desert areas that we have today, once were lush valleys. You know, so I guess humans have really uh, historically have just been destroying destroying the environment even before we had chemicals.
1: Well, I don't, yeah, somewhat. I mean, yeah, people, I mean, some cultures absolutely have. Other cultures, you know, didn't. There's one, I, and if anyone's, like, paying attention, um, they have, like, an extra, you know, week or two to kill. There's a 500, 600-page book out by the late David Graeber um, and David Wingrao, an archaeologist in England, called The Dawn of Everything, which kind of gets sort of an alternate picture of, like, prehistory and such, and it really does illustrate... You know, um, a lot of the diversity and such we've seen. So yeah, human beings and cultures have done a whole lot of bad stuff, um, but also some of them have not. You know, they've uh, we've always manipulated our environment, but we've just done it. You know, some places better, some places worse. So it's not like an inevitable thing. But when it has happened, boy, it has happened.
0: And and you're right. And the only reason why I bring this up because I mean, uh, first it was brought up in the comments, but the got me thinking. Like, I, I guess my question is 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 Can we, and maybe we probably don't have time to answer this question today for sure, or maybe even the the technology, but with this idea of the climate change or the environmental migrants, is there anything that we could do to mitigate the issues in their communities now, in their cities, uh, in their countries that make them so they don't have to leave?
1: you know if, if if i were sitting in dc and had the authority to you know mandate this that's exactly what i'd be thinking um, i remember back in the last administration there was a lot of talk about caravans of migrants and such but there was surprisingly little talk about okay well you can you can have big defensive walls or such but what about you know working the or making them leave which in central america a lot of them were very climate-centric in terms of desertification and like highlands of Guatemala and places like that so yeah there's a lot of things we can do and I think we're going to have to I think it's what's going to have to happen will be a mix of approaches they'll have to be a mix of yes con- richer countries will have to accept more you know people and at the same time as having to try to create better situations for those at home for ways to you know kind of uh reduce the uh the burden on on the those home countries that kind of help them adapt as well it's gonna have we're gonna have to be juggling a whole bunch of balls at the same time to do this successfully
0: so the migrant caravan that came in from south america was due to climate or due to environment
1: a lot of it was yeah there's um you can actually again uh you know and i feel bad about this i recommend the new york times a lot but i don't have a subscription so i like rely on <laughs> on like you know like free articles or whatever but um there was a. Uh, there was actually a series of really interesting journalism. And I think also a few other publications did this looking at Guatemala specifically. Um, And, you know, a lot of those caravans were not from Mexico itself from central American countries where, you know, a lot of those people, you know, frankly, they, the agriculture they're doing was very substance level. And when the rain stopped and when things happened, they just couldn't make it anymore.
0: Mm.
1: So a lot of it was. And so, well, that's another thing you have to, that I, I really kind of stuck in my mind is that, you know, when people see their land drying out or around them, you know, they're generally not, a lot of people are not just going to sit there and watch their kids start. They're going to do something. And so, you know, we have to, I think that's going to motivate things a lot in the future as well so you know it's uh it's an interesting thing i would definitely recommend people look at that but um you know the migrants just didn't sit there and decide one day oh we're just gonna go through a two thousand mile trip and go through mexico's very heavy border controls just to you know come here they 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 had reasons
0: yeah and it was not a uh a very <laughs> excuse me easy trip either right i mean there's no. a, a lot of uh along the way mexico is not necessarily uh friendly to them at all and then of course you know um, they got stuck there right i mean with uh-huh. there's really no place to go and um yeah i mean i i guess the the thing is is we have to really policy wise you know understanding that this is an issue um when we have environmental migrants is that how do we take them in can we take them in what do we do with people that you know whether i mean it's un. I'd say it's unfair to Mexico. I mean, they're 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 having the same issues, right? They're having the migrants come in uh, there as well, right? I mean, to all these nations worldwide, you know, what do we do with people that are migrating due to the fact that they're where they're at doesn't sustain them anymore? You know, water is a big issue. Mm-hmm. When I say water, potable water, right? You know, um the the there's a book and I forget who wrote it. Um, maybe, you know, this one is called the water wars. It's written about the water in India mm-hmm. and it, it's going to the fact that it's non-drinkable, right? The mm-hmm. Ganges River is, is not the, is the Ganges? Anyway, the river that goes through there is, is not, uh, it, the water is just poison now because of everybody putting feces and chemicals and stuff like that into it. And so this country has this great river running through it, but it's unusable for, for drinking water at least. Um, and, and so how do you millions, I don't, what's the population of India right now? It's, it's, it's getting close to a billion, you yeah, know, it's like I, 1.
1: 4 billion. I think it's almost like going to overtake China. Oh, really?
0: Country. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so you got 4, 4 billion is the population in India right now? 1, 1. 1.4 billion. 1.4 billion. Thank That's you. I, I knew I, just, I was like, well, that sounded a little high for me. <laughs> okay. So 1.4 billion. Yeah. And, and exactly. So how do you water? How do you? When I say water? How do you get them fresh, potable water that's not going to kill people? You know, and I think, you know, we have to think that way. And I mean, we had the same issues here, uh, Flint, Michigan, for instance, with the bad pipes and and where they're getting water from from the uh, from the lakes. So I mean, water is a huge issue for me. I, I think about it often. Um, you know, is that going to be driving people as
1: well? I think absolutely, hundred um, percent. I think. You know um I, you know i think you, you've seen some of it already happening um I, I don't i don't frankly know i mean a lot of it comes to the uncertainty of how the changing water cycle is gonna you know really impact the drinkability and the ability of say farmers to capture some of the water and such but um yeah, it's it's absolutely gonna become a a, um, a problem. I mean, I you mentioned India. And again, I, I don't want to get into sort of Indian subcontinent too much, but you know, a lot of the, the rivers coming from the the Himalay- are fed by the Himalayas, for instance, like the Ganges, all those big rivers, right? And so if the Himalayas start, you know, their their snow melt starts kind of going down as well. You got some big problems there, just like in Franklin, the Colorado and the US. I mean, you're seeing that sort of thing in terms of like right now, it's like basically you're having political struggles over sorry say water and such like that but i mean it's uh you know there's things you can do but at some level there's only so much you can do so i think it's absolutely going to be a a driver of things they'll be up to us whether we let it get to the point of you know more than words but um yeah, i think it's gonna definitely be an issue
0: yeah the foreign policy.com talks about our india and pakistan on the verge of a water war and then the um the Wire magazine has one on it as well. I was looking for the book name when I was when I was looking right here, but um, there's a bunch of articles out there if you want to read. So this is not just um, you know conspiracy theorists, if you will, you know, writing a book. This is this is some legit foreign policy uh, uh, that we're looking at um, as far as is what this means. And you're right, you know, the Colorado River um, is drying up. I mean, take a look at Lake Mead and Lake Powell. Uh, both of those are at the, at the lowest they've been in a long time. Um, maybe historically speaking, um, you know, I mean, I've seen pictures of, uh, of, of, of what it looked like before compared to what it is today. And it's just amazing to see that. And then I was actually at a lake at a reservoir, um, with a friend of mine, who's a bass fisherman, right. He's taking me out fishing and, um, it's, uh, in Paris, uh, California. And the ladder where the boat used to be able to get up to, to get up this, this, to get up to the to the top of off of the lake is like 20 feet high and that and he was like yeah the water used to be up there that used to be in the water you know so i mean that's just to, just to kind of let you know how, how quick we're drying out and um you, you know what i know we did again we don't have the answers here but what what is the answer to that i mean we can't stop using water i guess we could you know go to um you know here in california we can stop watering our lawns i mean that's I suppose that's a part of an answer, but you know, outside of that, I mean, we still got to take showers, we still have to eat, we still have to cook, we still have to,
1: you know, I mean, what's the answer to the water consumption issues that we're having? It depends on where you are. In in California, places like that, you will learn to live differently. Remember, before uh, the Europeans got there, you had a lot of thriving cultures that kind of did their own thing, and were actually um, quite a lot of leisure time, doing very well. However, they lived very differently than you know we tend to live. So. You know it really depends whether we're gonna have the flexibility. I'm not saying everyone needs to go to live like that absolutely, but I'm saying there's gonna to need to be the acceptance that'll probably be radical change for people to be able to still live where they are. And frankly, I think at some level, some people are probably gonna to have to go. um it's uh, it's a big problem. and I also want to mention something I was thinking of when you we were talking about this. It's um, so I live right now in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm not speaking from there, but that's where I you know live right now. and so, You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the dry line. um, It's sort of like that line through the middle of the continent where you get more moisture and less. So that the dry line has been sort of marching eastward by a certain number of miles every year. And Mm so um, there's going to come a point where it's going to, you know, it's still kind of in the middle of Kansas and such like that. It's going to come a point where it's going to get to places like, you know, Kansas City and Omaha. But more more importantly, it's going to get to the very rich farmlands. And so Mm -hmm. you have to really think differently about how you're going to farm where you're going to get the water to farm again you know this and another thing last thing i want to mention it's not just a matter of having too little water it's sometimes so one thing you've been seeing in the great lakes for instance is sort of the wild fluctuations in the level of water so sometimes it's gone like extreme flooding the city of chicago is seeing a lot of problems trying to figure out what to do with that so you know some places are going to get too much water some places are going to get too little water i think that's really the nature of climate change
0: yeah, I mean, in snow, for instance, right? I mean, you, you know, Boston a couple years in a row had so much snow they didn't know what to do with it, and uh, that was at the same time here on the West Coast we didn't have any snow coming. You uh-huh. know, so, so, so yeah. And I mean, at, and at the end of the day, you're right. It's the you know, speaking of snow, it's a snowpack that really makes a difference in the winter time. You know, the, the the rain is always critical, but uh, it, it's that sustained rain. It's not just those one or two days of of uh, large rainfalls that create problems that we have here, like the uh, you know, debris flow and whatnot. It's, it's the over the whole rainy season, if you will, that we need to have that rain happening. And it's not, not occurring. Well, Patrick, I know we have a lot of, we're, we're going to be having a webinar with you here in Mm -hmm. in May. Um, what are we going to talk about that at that, uh, at the webinar and what people expect?
1: We're going to talk a little bit about the, um, this, um, are also going to be talking more about, um, sort of some of the, some of the specifics around climate migration and the sort of managed retreat, which is the buzzword that people use, uh, you know, to describe, um, like kind of on the smaller scales and, you know, town, uh, na- uh, houses, neighborhoods, towns and such. And, um, I want to try to look at it from a couple different perspectives because sometimes we look at it only from a legal or policy perspective, but I think things like um, real estate and finance and things like that are as important, if not more important, um, as to how this is all going to shake out because it is going to have um, it's going to have a titanic impact and I, I i use that word deliberately it's going to have a pretty huge impact going forward
0: i'm looking forward to that i'm going to be bringing in mark baker right now to talk about the book the uh angry weather patrick or patrick mike Mark whatever your name is mark baker <laughs> i'm just gonna i'm just gonna rename you mark
2: it's fine that's fine <laughs>
0: So Mark, what's Angry Weather, what it's all about?
2: So February, we uh, we worked through Angry Weather by uh, Frederiki Odo. That's my only attempt to say her first name. It's Freddy from now on. Um, but what that was, it was, uh, I think, parallel to the conversation you're just having, it, it was uh, her and she put together this team of attribution scientists to take a forensic look at uh, weather, severe weather, and and climate change, and be trying to develop a technique which could you know, take uh, forensic elements from impact of of a severe disaster and try to trace that back to an origin of what of what contributed to the climate change that led to that weather, and ultimately leading to some accountability and holding you know those those big greenhouse producers uh, accountable at some point, ultimately to. Uh, to, to, to bring focus to the, our contributions to climate change and severe weather and the impacts that it has across the world. Um, very interesting book, very inser- interesting technique, you know, as a quasi law enforcement uh, practitioner uh, in the military and taking that forensic approach and being able to collect that data and then developing, they're, they're pretty close. I think they're almost perfecting to be able to. to you know, contribute that to uh, relate that to a source. I mean, that, that that was interesting to to see that technique develop throughout that and and their experiences. to Ron.
0: What are the takeaways that emergency managers should uh, grab from uh, and leaders should grab from that book? I
2: think I think the biggest takeaways is you know we know it's getting hotter and we know heat contributes to wind and water, uh, but our efforts. Certain certain focus on trying to mitigate the contributions. Maybe we should look at uh, identifying the risk and developing mitigations better. Using this technique, we can. Yes, it, it is a historical finding. We can work its way back to to an origin, but we can also use it to re- predict the future slightly and, and what to expect and what to prepare for uh, as practitioners in the emergency management world.
0: So the environmental issues that we're facing and, and that's actually realistically one of our tenants, right? Of, of the environmental impacts um, of disaster in general, uh, whether it's uh, due to um, weather or due to earthquakes or whatever the issue is, uh, when we have um, disasters, we have to look at the environmental impacts on that and know what that really means. Um, what are some of the solutions that she came up with in her book?
2: So that, I mean, just holding, bringing that focus, to light the to the contributions uh, that we're having on it, uh, but she also made a good, good point that that's only a small percentage of the the bad result of severe weather. The, the human beings we still have a significant part, in that in where we decide to develop our houses and what we decide to build with, and the mitigations we decide to or decide not to uh, implement as well. Uh, no real solutions really suggested, just a, a broader sense of awareness and and being able to use that data collected and gained to predict and mitigate future impacts.
0: Absolutely. Well, Mark and Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. Patrick, how can people find you?
1: Uh, you can uh, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, look up, look up, look me up by my name. I'm pretty active there, and um, I have a Twitter feed as well. Um, again, look me up by my name. I'm I'm around there, but um, yeah.
0: And if you guys are driving down the road, don't worry. We have Patrick's um, uh, information in the show notes. So just go ahead and click on those links. If your pencil's not sharp and you're, uh, where you're driving, please don't write when you're driving. Uh, <laughs> go ahead and just uh, click on those links and, and uh, reach out. Thank you both for your time today. Hey, everybody. Thank you for spending, for spending so much time with us this morning. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you for everybody in the comments section, Charlotte and Elaine and Tony, of course, you know, always there. It's, a, it's, a, it's great to see you all. And hey, everybody. Until next week, stay safe and stay hydrated.